I mentioned earlier that what I appreciate most about being up here is that I get to look down on Drew. That just is worth the whole trip coming here. 1989 is how far, Drew. I was, I was still in elementary school back then, but uh, Drew was older uh, when we first met. And uh, it's a real joy to be here in this church. Uh, we lived here uh, in Lancaster County for 17 years. My wife is a Lancaster County native with a birth certificate to prove it. And when she was younger, her family were actually in this church. But in those days, the gospel was not preached in this church. And we often lament in church history as we look at institutions, be they educational institutions or denominations or local churches that drift from the preaching of the Word and those firm convictions that are part of the heritage. And we see that, don't we? Example after example after example, but we must celebrate those times when God brings it back. And so I am so happy, not only for my friend Drew and for you all as a congregation, but for this church as your bulletin announces a beacon on the hill. Truly it is with your spire ascending into the sky as a, as a way to, to signal that here, uh, not stones, but the bread of life is offered to a people who desperately need it. So I pray God's blessing on your ministry and on this church uh, for generations to come. May the gospel uh, be proclaimed here at St. Stephen's. As, as I was thinking about this text and as I was thinking about this moment in which we live, I, I saw a, a definite application of 2 Timothy chapter 3 to this moment in which we find ourselves. In fact, you may have used this expression and you may have heard this expression that we are living in a situation that seems to be going from bad to worse. We have headlines that are grim and grimmer, Uh, maybe such that you've just given up on the news altogether because you just feel that might be safer for you and it keeps up with your blood pressure medicine if you just let the news go. And we are living in a moment where we all palpably feel it, like a seismic shift that's taking place underneath our feet, and we sense it, and we sense that things are bad, and they're getting worse. That line actually occurs in this text that we will be looking at. Uh, before we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 15, I just want to give a little bit of the context. We know that this is Paul's final inspired words, and among his final words indeed. It's a matter of time, could be weeks at the most, maybe a month or two, before Paul will finish this epistle and then be led Uh, Under the order of Nero, uh, likely one of the most despicable leaders ever in human history, uh, that Paul will be led to his execution martyrdom. He's leaving Timothy, 
We know a little bit from Timothy. We get the sense that he perhaps was intimidated by his age and the responsibility with which he faced. Paul exhorts him to to not let those around him despise him for his youth. Paul exhorts him to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. Maybe Timothy, already as a young man in the ministry, is having stomach ulcers from the challenges that he's facing. We get the picture that those are some of the challenges that Timothy had. And Paul knows that. And so he writes this epistle to Timothy to encourage him. But as you read chapter 3, it reads something like this. It's as if Paul is saying, uh, Timothy, things are really bad, but don't worry because they're going to get worse. Uh, Two realities, Timothy. One is I'm leaving you. His mentor, his father in the faith, his, his rock that he leaned on is going to be leaving this earth. That's a reality that Timothy needs to face. And the second reality is that it's going to get more and more and more difficult. I suspect that throughout Timothy's life, he always listened when Paul had something to say. I suspect that Timothy made sure to pay attention, to hear the timber of Paul's voice as he shared words of wisdom and encouragement to Timothy. But I suspect that at this moment, Timothy is now straining with every fiber of his being to lean in, to hear what Paul has to say to him. I think he has Timothy's attention. And so, with that, let us look to God's Word, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Every time we read God's Word, we listen with attentive ears. When we read Paul, we know we need attentive ears to decipher and discern. But here we are, facing a time that we feel is somewhat parallel to that of Timothy's, perhaps. So, let us lean in and listen to Paul. Verse 10, you, very personal. I hope you feel that. It's it's the second person singular. You, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed it, knowing from whom you learned it, 
and, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word of God. May God bless it in our midst. Uh, These verses, uh, verses 10 to 15, are tucked in between the beginning verses of the chapter, which are a catalog of the moral degradation that surrounded Timothy in his context of first century Rome. And these verses 10 to 15 are then followed by that that bookend uh, text of, of verses 16 and 17, which I suspect many of you have memorized and probably memorized from the time you were little, the, the most dense real estate in all of Scripture to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. But what's fascinating to me are these five verses wedged in between there. Uh, Verse 10 begins with the however. So we know that conjunction, and it causes us to send our eyes back over those previous verses to see the, the contrast that Paul wants us to grasp. And the contrast is the world is falling apart, and it is devouring itself like a parasite. And there is not only a moral degradation, there is an epistemological degradation. There's a degradation of ethics in society as the culture is careening into barbarianism of first century Rome. And what's worse is that it's crept into the church. But there's also a degradation of the truth. And so culture of the first century Roman world was awash in a sea of misinformation and deception and lies parading as truth. And that was true of the culture. And it had made inroads into the church. Churches that even Paul planted were not immune. Think of the churches in the region of Galatia. And not false teaching on the periphery, not false teaching on the margins of doctrines, but false teaching on the gospel itself had made its way into churches that Paul planted. And you, Timothy, are surrounded by this. I think we feel that, don't we? Uh, Perhaps for the first time in a generation, maybe two or three generations, the American church, American Christians, perhaps this chapter is resonating more with our current experience than it has over that past generation or the previous generation. And that we would read texts, oh, verses Like verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we needed to hear stories of brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe to understand what that meant. 
But now we're feeling it a little bit closer to home, aren't we? We're sensing the abnormality of what it means to stand on Christian conviction in this moment in which we live. We are sensing what a premium the truth is. What a precious commodity, a foundation upon which you can stand and know with surety and certainty that this is true. That is a precious commodity in this world in which we live. We are awash in a sea of deception and misinformation and lies parading as the truth. And what does Paul do for Timothy? He does two things. He presents Timothy a biographical example. He gets personal with Timothy, and he points to his own life to Timothy. And not only does he point to his own life, he draws application from it for Timothy to stand in this moment. So he gets biographical. He also gets, and I'm going to give you a big, lots of syllables word, he gets bibliographical or bibliological with Timothy. Uh, Bibliology is the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Bible. And so, what Paul puts in front of Timothy here is a doctrine of the Bible that Timothy can not just know, but can draw application from. Paul gives him biography, and he gives him bibliology as a place to stand in this moment of moral and truth degradation. So, first, the personal. He says, you know, you followed my teaching. And not just teaching, not just content, but teaching that was at the very center of Paul's being that affected everything he did, his conduct. And not only his conduct, it was that big picture that he lived for. It was that, that mission of his life. His aim in life was governed by this teaching that is the center of him. And this resulted in his patience, his love, his steadfastness. Timothy hears this, and he, he knows this is true of Paul. It, it rings true to his ears how patient Paul was with Timothy, how loving Paul was to Timothy, how forbearing and long-suffering Paul was to Timothy. And then he reminds Timothy of his persecutions, and he tells Timothy, if you signed on to being a minister of the Word of God because you thought it was a bed of roses and, and the Waldorf Astoria, forget it. It's a, it's a different path, Timothy. It's a path of suffering. It's a path of persecution. Now, let's <clears throat> pause right here. Because we can say, well, this applies to Timothy. I can sort of step back a little bit and have a little distance from this to me. Or you could say, no, this applies to that man right there, Dr. DiNardo. It applies to him, and I hope he's listening to everything that's being said because he needs to hear it. Well, we need to hear it too. This applies to us. It applies to me. It applies to you. 
And what Paul is telling us here is that we should expect persecution and suffering. He says to Timothy, you remember my persecutions, my sufferings. He, He brings out three specific examples. He says to Timothy at Antioch, and he doesn't have to elaborate. Timothy knows exactly. He, he recalls to memory. He has, he has the details, the, the texture of what happened at Antioch. Do you remember Antioch? It was there that this persecuted church was first called Christian. What a great city. In the history of the world, that's where the term Christian originated. Now, do you know what it means to be a Christian? Of course, it means to be a Presbyterian. We know that. A follower of Christ. Christus. The one who was shamed, the one who was rejected, the one who suffered, the one who came into this world, offered himself to this world, and the world pushed him out all the way to a cross. This is Antioch. Timothy hears that, he remembers. And, and not only Antioch. But Iconium. And so Timothy remembers Iconium. And he remembers Paul. Maybe it was over a meal. Maybe it was they were walking together. And Paul rehearsed the events of Iconium. And all Timothy needs to do is, is hear the town. And he remembers. And Lystra. Paul is telling Timothy what he can expect. And a a disciple is not above his master. And as Jesus suffered, and Paul suffered, and you, Timothy, you will suffer. So, So Paul wants Timothy to be encouraged not by dodging suffering, not by avoiding it, but by this Beautiful verse, the end of verse 11. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Ah, this is better than having the United States Marines come and airlift you out of the complex and perplexing and difficult situation. This is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of armies, who rescues us. We may sense the persecution, we may sense the suffering. God promises to never leave His children behind. He will always rescue us. But Paul shifts from the personal and the biographical to the bibliological. 
And so he does this at verse 14. On the heels of false teachers, on the heels of deception, he says, but as for you. He tells Timothy three things in verse 14. Number one, continue in what you have learned. Key word there is continue. Uh, Timothy, you are never going to graduate from studying the Bible. Uh, You may graduate from college. You may graduate from seminary. You may even persevere to get a doctor of ministry from the Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies, right, Dr. DiNardo? But you will never graduate from studying God's Word. Uh, When I first got to Ligonier, one of the projects that I was working on, some of you might have it right now, the Reformation Study Bible. And my office had hundreds of pages, uh, over a million words went into that Reformation study Bible, in addition to the words of the biblical text. And we made a video, and I, I remember the video, and Dr. Sproul was in the video, and he, he said, uh, you know, we call this the Reformation study Bible, but what we hope is that this causes a Bible study Reformation. It's not enough to read your Bible. You have to study it and study it and study it. Well, I came across uh, Dr. Sproul's notes from the early years at the study center. And this goes back to 1971, and one of the first things he taught on was Bible study methods, how to study the Bible. And number one, in his perfect cursive handwriting. His elementary school teacher would have been so proud of his handwriting, and he writes out, it's not enough to read the Bible. We must study, underline, underline, underline the Bible. Fifty years, he said the same thing. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Pour yourself into the text and let the text pour itself into you. And then he says, and remember what you have firmly believed. And the key here is firmly. It's not just enough to have beliefs. We must have convictions. And we live in a moment where we see people caving and compromising and capitulating on convictions left and right. Whole denominations selling the birthright for the myth of cultural influence. But not you, Timothy. Stand firm. It's not just enough to believe. This is, this is Luther. Here I 
stand. It's conviction on the Word of God. And then this beautiful phrase, knowing from whom you learned it. Well, who did he learn it from? Paul. Not a bad teacher to have. Uh, Probably one of the most smartest individuals ever to have lived. We need to see our biblical authors as people, and Paul was a brilliant student, a brilliant writer. His epistles, short, are yet packed with some of the densest, most profound writing of all time. The argument of the book of Romans. Doesn't Peter even say there are things that are in Paul that are hard to understand? This was Timothy's teacher, and he was ambitious, zealous. Uh, Paul was a 24-7 guy, two two millennia before that expression. And all that education and all that ambition was in the wrong direction, and when God converted Paul and shone that light on his face of the truth of who God is and of the gospel, and Paul was converted, it was a 180, and now all of that education and all of that ambition is directed to proclaiming the gospel and the glory of God. And Timothy had a front row seat to the teaching. And it wasn't just Paul, but, but dip back, Timothy, and there's a godly grandmother, and there's a godly mother, and you have the blessing of great teachers in your life. Now, all of you sitting here can do the same thing. I can dip back on those teachers that God graciously gave to me. My fourth grade Sunday school teacher, Ella Jean Detweiler, 40 plus years teaching fourth grade boys Sunday school class. God bless her. There is an incumbent obligation here, isn't there? To whom much has been given, much will be required. So we look out on the horizon. We read the headlines, we see it from going bad to worse, and we shake our heads and we wag our finger, but we also need to take up the task of teaching the next generation, of giving back that teaching that we received. Isn't this God's succession plan? He sets it up that Paul trained Timothy, and Timothy is to train faithful men who will teach others also. Isn't this God's succession plan for how this works? The deposit of faith, what the early church called the deposit, depositum fide, that, that content of the gospel, that orthodox, faithful, historic Christian doctrine. It is a precious commodity. And it is incumbent and beholden on every generation to teach the next generation. We can see things going from bad to worse, but do something about it by investing in training the next generation to stand on the truth, firm on the truth.
And then we come to this wonderful verse, verse 15. How from childhood you have been acquainted. And Paul tells Timothy two things here. I want to look at that verb, acquainted. And then I want to look at the object of that. And the object that Timothy has become acquainted with is, what a beautiful expression Paul uses here for the Bible, sacred writings. Sacred means holy. The opposite of sacred is profane, or even the word vulgar. Now, for us, profanity and vulgarity means those words you don't say, or at least you just say them under your breath. But the words actually mean common, ordinary. That's the profane. That's the vulgar. But you cross a a threshold. You go through the veil and behind the veil, and you go from the profane to the sacred. Uh, Timothy, these aren't the writings of the Greek philosophers. These are not the dialogues of Plato and books of Aristotle. Uh, These are not the histories of Herodotus and Thucydides. These are not the poets, Agabus, that Paul himself even quotes in Acts chapter 17. Oh, these are not the rich classical writings. These are the sacred writings. Every time you open the Word of God, you cross the threshold. You you go beyond the veil from the profane to the sacred. We're standing on holy ground. I loved old Bibles that have on the spine with the gold foil stamp, Holy Bible. A holy God speaks a holy word. Every time, Timothy, you study this book, you are on sacred ground. And then he uses this expression, acquainted. Now, we need to dig in a little bit here, because I think the word acquainted throws us off a little bit. When we say the word acquainted, that's sort of a, a relationship that we might have with someone on the margins. We might, might know them in a sort of sketch fashion, but that's not the word here. Uh, the word here, and there are different expressions that we can use from the original language for knowledge. The word here is to know the inner workings of the thing. It's actually related to the verb to see. I'm not very mechanical. That's why I work with words. And people will try to explain things to me, like how an engine works. And eventually, somewhere in the process, I'll say something like, I see. And we use that expression, don't we? Uh, the light bulb went off. It was, it was darkness, opaque and, and just sort of veiled and sketchy. But now, I see. I know it. I know it intimately. 
We can talk about the beauty of the Conestoga Valley, uh, the beauty of the Twin Valley. But I had the good fortune of living here for 17 years. We can know experientially the beauty of this place, not just be acquainted with it, like, say, for instance, a New Jersey tourist. Sorry for that. But this is what Paul's telling to Timothy. Could I paraphrase this for you? Timothy, you have had a constant companion in your life. It's the Word of God. I've been there for you, and I've been an example to you. But now, this is what Paul does. By saying to Timothy, you've been acquainted with Scripture, this is what Paul does. He personifies Scripture for Timothy. It's alive, Timothy. It's a living book that is your constant, faithful companion. You've never met a problem that has outpaced Scripture. You've never faced a perplexing situation that has run past what Scripture has to offer. You've never found it to be wanting or to disappoint or to let you down and never, ever drift from it as you move forward in life. Scripture up until this point in your life, Timothy, has been your constant companion. And as Paul is about to walk off of the face of the earth, he says to Timothy, and keep it so, until your end. Stay with your constant companion. Scripture has never let you down, and it never will. You know, I think it was Owen who talked about Scriptures are such that a, that a, a duck, or a, here's something I haven't seen since I've been down in Florida, Canada geese can just sort of skim along the surface And meanwhile, Scriptures are so deep that an elephant can swim in it. Isn't this the beauty of Scripture? A child can understand this text. And an octogenarian is still learning things about it. Like a a multifaceted diamond that you just continue to turn and see new and more radiant and brilliant facets. This is Paul's encouragement, his instruction, his exhortation to Timothy, and it is his exhortation to us. In this moment where everything is shifting and we feel it, in this moment where we are discouraged, let us remember that Scripture, our constant companion, has never let us down. It never will. And I hear this text, I'm, I'm reminded of two historical stories. Uh, one is what Spurgeon said of Bunyan. Uh, Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, that author of Pilgrim's Progress, that Bunyan was saturated with Scripture. And he uses that to say, may, may we be saturated with Scripture. And he says, you could prick Bunyan anywhere. The needle just prick his arm, and 
Bunyan would bleed Bibline. His blood ran Bible. What an example, an exhortation to us. Uh, But I want to leave you with the the final words of Luther. He's he's back in his hometown of Eisleben. It's uh, 1546. You know, the first time Luther read a Bible, had a Bible, was in 1510. Imagine that. He was 28 years old, been in the church all of his life. First time he actually held a Bible, 1510. I don't think he ever set it down from 1510 to 1546. And those 36 years are Luther years. He's reading through the Bible sometimes five or six times a year. He read through the Psalms such in his adult life that every six weeks he was reading through the Psalms. He poured over the Bible. And here he is dying in Erfurt. And he he scratches on a piece of paper what are his final words. And he's remembering classic texts. He he talks about no, no one who's read Cicero can really understand Cicero unless they've been a statesman for 20 years. And no one who's read the Bucolics and the Georgics, which are books about farming, unless they've been a farmer for 30 years. And then he says, let no one venture onto this divine oracle. Unless they've had the prophets and the apostles be their teacher for a hundred years. Isn't that Luther with his hyperbole, always exaggerating? But then he says, at the very end of all that, he says... Therefore, there is something wonderful about the Bible. He says, let not your hand on this divine Aeneid bow before it. Adore its every trace. And then he writes in German. So far, he's been writing in Latin. Then in German, he writes, Versin Petler. We are beggars. And then he comes back to Latin, hoc est verum, this is true. Do you see what Paul tells Timothy? All of this acquainting with Scripture, do you know what it will do? It will make you wise unto salvation. What's Luther's realization after 36 years of studying the Bible? We are beggars. Humility bowing before the Word of God. And do you know what we have actually become? We are beggars who know where to find bread. And so we come back to the bread of life. And we have an obligation, don't we? To tell other beggars, we're no better than you. We're all beggars. The difference between us and you is we know where to find bread, and you don't. And everywhere you're looking is going to disappoint you until you turn to the bread of life. Because there is one thing that makes us wise unto salvation. It is the Word of God. Timothy, stand on it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice that here in this church, uh, from this pulpit, sounds forth the faithful proclamation of Your Word, Your Word 
which is able to make us wise unto salvation. May we study it, may we know it, may we trust in it, obey it, and proclaim it through the power of your Holy Spirit and the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.